Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. You're listening to the Wicked Library. <laughs> Flexibility can go a long way. By refinancing your newer used auto loan with PenFed, you can lower your monthly payments for more flexibility in your budget. You can even schedule your first payment for up to 60 days from the date of your refinance. Calculate how much you could save at PenFed.org slash auto refi or call 1-800-247-5626 to apply. Membership is open to everyone. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Hello, and welcome to episode number 1010 of the Wicked Library. I'm Daniel Foytek, and I thank you for listening. A big thank you to those who took the time to rate us five stars and write a short review for us on iTunes. Your ratings do help others find the show, and of course, we love hearing from you. The librarian told me that if you haven't yet picked up our first written anthology, 13 Wicked Tales, available in Amazon and print and Kindle, he thinks you're very wicked, but not in the good way. To become Wicked in a good way, you can grab your copy at thewickedlibrary.com forward slash read. It's packed with great tales by some of your favorite authors from the show, and the book also features cover art and illustrations by Jeanette Andromeda. It's a fantastic collection, and we know you'll want a copy for your own Wicked Library. Again, get yours now at thewickedlibrary.com forward slash read. As always, before we get started today, a big thank you to those of you who are supporting the show. We've had several new supporters sign up on Patreon, and we all deeply thank you. Without you, this show would not be possible. On behalf of the authors and everyone else involved in making the show, a sincere thank you for your support of this show and of independent horror fiction. If you're not yet supporting the show, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash Wicked Library. Today's episode features a dark tale by Wicked Library alum Paul Michael Anderson, who wrote today's story, The Man at Dealey Plaza, just for the Wicked Library. Today's storyteller is our good friend and very talented actor, Graham Rowett. Please, if you enjoy the story, find Paul's work and buy it. It keeps him making more. You can learn more about Paul and find links to his other work on his bio page at thewickedlibrary.com and, of course, at amazon.com. Now, let's get wicked. Ah, so you've come in search of a story, have you? Well, you've come to the right place. My private collection of dark tomes are hungry for your fear, filled with stories that are sure to terrify, disturb, and delight. Be warned, though, these tales are not for sensitive listeners. You're going to hear things that will upset and quite possibly offend. Ah, here's a good one. Follow me now and we'll enjoy this tale together. It's story time at the Wicked Library.
he's dead. He's dead. You're fine for right now. Fuck, my head hurts. Um, there's a dead man in my apartment, and I wish I could see him to make sure he is dead. I think he is. I kept stabbing until he stopped choking me. I felt blood hit the scar tissue where my eyes used to be, and for the first time in years, I didn't wish I could still see. I didn't scream because I didn't want the blood in my mouth. It would have been okay, I think, to scream. Most people are at work right now, so I probably could have. But it's better that I didn't. I don't know this man, even though he knew me. He said my name. He knew where I lived. I think he's dead. I had to wiggle out from under his body. I felt him piss on my leg. I think he's dead. But even though he would have bled into my eyes, I wish I could see it. In my head, I just imagined him slowly turning himself over. We ended up in the archway between my living room and my dining room, and now I'm in the kitchen, and I know there's a direct line of sight. You know what I mean. Between me and him, and I imagine him watching me, watching me talk into this stupid goddamned recorder. But he doesn't make a sound, even though my ears are really, really good nowadays. So he crawls over, and he pulls out the steak knife I left in him, and... What the fuck am I doing, Jesus? Jesus Christ. <laughs> I guess, uh, I guess it's imagine the worst thing possible so it doesn't happen. It's either do this or start screaming. And yeah, I know it's early in the day and almost no one's in the building. That kind of thing would eventually be noticed, right? You have no idea how fucking crazy this all is. I know how crazy this sounds, and you still have no idea how fucking crazy this is all going to be. But I gotta focus. I only have so much time. I know it, and I can't spend it fucking around, low-key panicking. Christ. Wait. sounds of my building throughout the day. I'll know when an unexpected vehicle comes down my block or when a car door opens when I don't expect it to. I hope. <sighs> okay, um, let's hit the basics. My name is uh, Eddie Wozniak, Ed Wozniak, and if you're hearing this, your name is probably Bobby. You were my colleague when I worked at the Gazette before the terrorist attack that sure as shit wasn't an actual terrorist attack. And the police called you because I have you listed as my emergency contact, and they don't know what the fuck happened here in my apartment. Fuck. I'm also probably dead when you hear this, but... But I don't know if my body will be found here, too. Fuck! I know it's you, Bobby, because if you haven't let your journalism skills go completely to shit since becoming the Metro editor, you'd remember we used to smoke weed after work, and I would stash my stash in that upper corner of the door frame between my bedroom and the hall where the wood's loose. 
You'll know to look there. Eventually, look there when the police call and there are too many questions. I hope I'm not dead when you find this. I hope. <sighs> okay, I'm okay. Bobby, I'm panicking and trying to control it, but there's already one man who's tried to kill me, but he's not going to be the last. Oh, no, 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 because I know something they don't want me to know. Another secret. The one person left who does. And I know this all sounds fucking Looney Tunes, but just listen, okay? Bobby, listen to me. I'm going to frame it like a bunch of fucking articles, okay? You remember when we'd sit in my living room passing the bowl and trying to figure out how the fuck we were going to get our copy done for the day. One of us would be fucking spazzing and the other would go, frame it, like that. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. Five fucking W's and an H. The best part of journalism is that you can lock random events into a certain structure. If you know the five W's and the H of any event, you have a story. You have fucking form. Being a reporter meant you took that form and gave it to others. You form the narrative, at least in the lead. Most would turn the page or click away. But the lead is what mattered. It sets the guardrails. Shows how everyone should look at something. I have to start at the beginning. What happened ten years ago explains what happened nine years ago. Explains the previous decade to the past year. To the dead guy in my apartment and the living guy probably coming way too soon. I know it doesn't make sense, Bobby. Just listen. I have a dead man's blood on me and my scar tissue itches where my eyes used to be and I'm just... I'm just a little frazzled right now. Anyway, I'll try to make it make sense for you. You might be able to help me. Okay? What's the lead? <sighs> Over 300 people were killed in what authorities called an apparent terrorist bombing at the Tulip Park 10 years ago, with another 70 hospitalized with grave or severe injuries. Authorities reported that although the terrorist attack aspect was apparent, no motive had been discovered and no group came forward to take credit. If only I could have written that lead contemporaneously. God, it's so easy. I haven't written a fucking word in ten years, but you don't forget how to structure reality for other people. I wish I could have written that line. If I hadn't been unconscious in St. Lucy's with gauze and disinfectant where my eyes used to be, and a fuck ton of drugs in my system. How'd you write it? I remember going down there. Not on assignment, but because I didn't have a story due, and I needed to get the fuck out of my apartment. Christ, I remember early on how my apartment was way too small. I like the size now. Anyway, the Tulip Park, ten minutes away. On good mornings for the past few weeks, I've been listening to construction going on for the ten-year memorial. It was just an autumn fest, if you remember. I've been listening to the news and their packages and follow-up reports on the progress on the memorial. They're making it bigger than it was. It was just some shitty Saturday festival. The kind of thing that's always perpetually on the brink of being cancelled until some anonymous benefactor swoops in at the last second. A bunch of jam bands and folk bands. A lot of vendors. It was a nice day, but cloudy. I've heard news packages where the narrator goes something like, It was a sunny day at the Tulip Park. But it wasn't. It was cloudy. Warm, though. Felt good in short sleeves. Listen, I didn't know this at the time. The police beat was McHenry's crew, remember? Him and Gloria and that little prick Antonio. 
But anyway, I didn't know that on the day of the concert. It had been exactly two weeks since that college kid had been murdered in a dorm room in Oakdale. Right on the University of Hathaway's campus. That's according to the coroner's report. The body was found a few days later. I didn't know it had been two weeks previous to that that someone else had been killed in Riverton, on the other side of the city. I didn't know about the bodies in Hawthorne Heights or the East Hills or the North Side. I didn't know that none of the residences showed any signs of forced entry or that all the people were discovered only after dropping out of sight for a few days. I didn't know at the time that each one had had their hearts removed. More specifically, it looked like something had chewed through their chests to their hearts. Like an animal. I got that last detail about two months ago. I called in a tab down at the coroner's office with Tim. Remember Tim? He's still there. He says hi. He then proceeded to scare the fuck out of me with decade-old facts. But anyway, I didn't know any of that then. What I did know was that the festival would have funnel cake, and it'd be family-friendly so it wouldn't have an obnoxious amount of drunks. And it was pleasantly warm, and I just didn't feel like hanging the fuck around my apartment when I can go make fun of a fish cover band in some nice weather. I knew those things. I remember walking up Grant Street, turning on 5th so I could enter the Tulip Park from the eastern side, where you have that fucking awesome view of the incline across the river. Also, having gone to these things before, I knew that the eastern entrance is usually the quietest, so I could get in and out without having to shoulder through too many people. Not that that was a problem, though. Like I said, almost no one went to those fucking things. This one was decent enough, though. Something like 400 people, I think. I remember the bands changing on the makeshift stage in the Tulip Park Central Field. College students milling around, counting down to sunset so they can hit the clubs. Bohemians playing hacky sack at the edges of the loose crowd. Little kids on the shoulders of their dads. The dads in cargo shorts. The strollers. A lot of kids. The colors of the banners on the stage. I remember how it all looked. A reporter focuses on the action, records it, structures it in the lead. Gives it form. It's like, it's like there's a Pruder film. We've all seen it. That handful of frames where an American president's head becomes a water balloon. Those images are so indelible in the American cultural zeitgeist that it is how we remember it. One viewpoint, one event, jammed into that singular view. Kennedy had been riding through Dealey Plaza. The sidewalks choked with people with their own perspectives on one of the most traumatic events in American history. But Zapruder's film is how society remembers it. That left-to-right movement of the car, angled slightly so it comes from the upper left to the lower right. The camera elevated so it's looking down on the motorcade. We cannot picture it any other way. There were thousands of ways Kennedy died that day. Thousands of viewpoints. Only one became history. A new band starts playing, and it's exactly the same as the last band. And my eyes start wandering. I'm either too old or too young in this crowd. Too young for the families, too old for the boho college kids. Being a cultural middle child at 28. But then I see this group of older people. Older than the rest. Fifties, I think. I don't remember how many, though. And that's something. That was the first thing that led me to think things were... off. Wrong. That what I'd been told had happened wasn't actually what happened. Look, craziness aside, you know how good I am with details, Bobby. You remember that. I can give you the pattern of the colors of the banners around the stage. Green, yellow, orange, red, brown. And if you decided to fact-check that random detail from ten years ago, an old photo maybe, you know I'd be right. 
I was always good at that. But I can't tell you how many old people I saw at the edge of the crowd. Less than a dozen, I think. They were wearing black everything. Hoodies drawn up so I could see only the pale chins, the wrinkled neck skin, the noses that might have been red from burst capillaries or drink. I'm not sure about that last one, though. We all color our memories. That's why it's easier for something like the Zapruder film to take hold. I know they wore black gloves, black shoes, geriatric goth kits. I've told myself for years that it's because of the hoodies that I can't remember how many, but Christ, that sounds stupid and always has. But they kind of glob together in my memory, this big amorphous blob of black. I remember them doing something, something together with their hands. Oh. Fuck! And I'm looking at them, watching them do whatever it is they're doing with their hands. Then I hear a sound, like all the strings of an acoustic guitar snapped at once, directly into a microphone. And then it's like a jump cut in a movie. And my world is black, and my eyes are filled with what feels like dozens of ants, all crawling and biting, and people are holding me down while a man yells to bring me the shot. Bring me the goddamn shot right the fuck now. And it's two months later, and I don't remember a single fucking thing. Nope, not a thing. Not a goddamn thing. Motherfucker! Sorry. You gotta understand, I have to balance getting this information out, dealing with the fact that I had to kill someone only a little while ago, and realizing that another person is going to come through that door again any minute. I managed to get over to my couch and shove it over, kind of wedge it into the space where my apartment door is. But that's a weak fucking solution. I can't hear anything outside, so that's good. I don't remember much after seeing the weird goth versions of the cast of Cocoon and the sound of a dude's guitar breaking. I don't know what they were doing beyond, like me, standing at the back of the crowd. But I know they were doing something. And you have to believe me on this, Bobby. That something led to those hundreds of people dead and me blind. I remember two things after seeing those Hot Topic senior citizens. These two things didn't happen immediately after, but the events happened in this order. I remember seeing something kill the band's guitar player, resulting in his guitar getting destroyed. I saw it, even if my mind refuses to let me remember it. And... Whatever it was I saw made me reach up to my face and claw my own fucking eyes out. This is clearer to me, actually, than the first thing. I can remember the feel of my hands, the nails digging into the skin around my sockets. And while that was happening... Fuck, Bobby. I remember feeling... happy. Feeling ecstatic. I wasn't going to see this anymore. Whee! Listen, Bobby, I know what the report said. I know what the police said, and the ATF said, and the FBI said. A bomb. I mean, goddamn, it left a crater right the fuck in the middle of the Tula Park. People, those people with kids and strollers and cargo pants and shit were torn apart, scorched. The survivors, of which I was one, were wounded by heat and force and shrapnel. 
I took a bit of stage to the face, that's what my surgeon said. I have scar tissue across the top half of my head. But I don't. I mean, look, Bobby. Is my forehead scarred? My scalp? Did I lose hair? How is it I was only scarred along an extremely narrow band, right where my eyes are? And I know, I know you can probably picture it like one of those punchline deaths in movies like Final Destination. This piece of, say, metal rebar whizzing through the air like, I don't know, a frisbee hits me in the perfect spot to blind me. Don't tell me you don't see it. But that's not what happened. I clawed my own fucking eyes out. Grateful I wouldn't be seeing whatever it was I saw killing the guitar player. Whatever it was the old people had summoned. Yes, the old people summoned it. Okay, this is ridiculous. Let me, let me back away from this. Come at it from a different angle. I woke in the hospital two months later. Although I wasn't really conscious until two weeks after that, because every time I woke up, I lost my fucking mind. I spent two weeks stoned to the gills, because that's the only way anyone could deal with me. It was the only way I could deal with myself. You told me later about the infection. That was part of the reason I was down for so long. I was one of the last survivors to leave the hospital. Now I'm one of the last survivors in general. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. My doctors told me after I badgered them that my eyes were completely destroyed. It's not a pretty sight, I've been told. By you, actually, when I asked. I hate these Ray Charles shades I wear, but it spares everyone, I think. You know this part of the story. I was released two months after I woke up, after I'd begun the process of learning to exist in a world without sight. Did you know I can tell where I am in the apartment just by how it sounds? I can hear certain things in certain places. Benefits of being in the same apartment for two decades. I can walk through, and if my shades are on, you'd think I wasn't blind. If nothing else, Bobby, you never stop being my friend. Thank you, by the way. I retired from being a reporter, a retiree before 30. I found other hobbies and interests. It's been ten years. Ten years this weekend. Okay, okay, I can feel my panic starting to rise again. My head's filling with questions of what I can do, how I can save my own ass. I don't think I can, honestly. I could call the cops, sure. Blind guy was attacked in his home, nothing confusing about that. But I have to tell you this, Bobby. If I call, and yes, if I'm saved, I never get to. And I think calling the cops will only delay the inevitable. I have to die before this weekend. Today's what? Wednesday? Someone will kill me by Saturday. They'll have to if everything's going to work. And they're really motivated. I know I sound like a fucking loon. So, time for another lead. Former Gazette reporter Eddie Wozniak began investigating the details of the Tulip Park bombing, as it's called by officials, after details in his own memory and discrepancies in the official record became too numerous to ignore. I knew something was off when I was still in the hospital, Bobby. The therapist they assigned me explained that it's not uncommon to have episodic amnesia after traumatic events. I survived a terrorist attack that left me permanently scarred. It makes sense, she said, for your mind to want to shield you from certain aspects of what happened. The event, she said, triggered something like a circuit breaker flipping. The memory's in my head, she explained, but it's buried and locked away, and will come out only when my brain feels I'm ready. She's about half right. 
I think my brain is shielding me from the memory. I picture the memory like a box thrown into some sub-basement in my head. My brain did that, but something else did too. You know I don't believe in God, and I don't think God did it. Say it was more like the rules of our reality, our existence. Something I saw was so wrong in the order of things that my brain and reality itself made sure I wouldn't remember. But she was wrong in the sense of why. My therapist was coming at this from the angle that I'd seen a terrorist attack. I'd been blinded by a bomb. This is where Zapruder comes back in. You remember me asking you to go to my apartment and bring me my laptop? Probably don't. It was ten goddamn years ago, but you might. I needed my laptop, my beat-to-shit Acer, because I knew the feel of the keyboard. I could navigate it without sight. It had voice activation, too, which helped. That's the only good thing about my Dell laptop that I use for online classes. I still haven't gotten used to the keyboard, even with Braille keys. And I've had that fucking deck for how many years now? I had to get online, see the story. Fuck, you know what I mean. Hear the fucking story for myself. So I checked out the Gazette's piece, USA Today's, videos from CNN, articles from the AP, listening to audio readings. I had to stop whenever a doctor or a nurse or my therapist came in and wanted to do something with me. Two months worth of stories from all across the news world. Local, national, international, straight reporting and punditry bullshit. I spent three days in that hospital bed listening to the videos and the audio reads. The facts were, according to sources, this. One, nail bombs, similar to the ones in the Boston Marathon bombings years ago, were reportedly used, though how many and a definitive confirmation were impossible due to the damage. A crater was left in the Tulip Park. Officials estimate eight bombs right under the stage. Fact number two, 365 people were killed outright or in the first days after the attack. Fact number three, 77 people survived with varying degrees of injuries. I was, according to reports, the most injured. Fact number four, no group came forward to take responsibility for the bombing or give a reason. Pundits blamed everyone from Muslims to white nationalists to their own parents. Fact number five, no one knew what the official target was. Is there a group more personally annoying but minimally offensive than a bunch of boho folk singers? I mean, come on. But I was... Okay, these are facts. This is what happened. I could accept that. My therapist was thrilled. She thought I'd be worse off with knowing. But I was a reporter. Facts give me comfort. Details give me comfort. We know how Kennedy died because we saw it in the Zapruder film. How uncomfortable would people be now if they saw Kennedy take the shot from another angle? Can you imagine how uncomfortable I was when I started seeing the holes in those facts? It was a slow process, just something catching in my head. Those old people, whatever it was they were doing with their hands, why couldn't I see it? My therapist knew I remembered up until that moment. I never told her about the broken strings. I didn't tell her why it bothered me that I couldn't remember what the old folks were doing with their hands. I couldn't figure out a way to explain it that it makes sense to her. She didn't know me from Adam, for Christ's sake. But it got worse when I got home. Those first few weeks were pain and insanely busy. Therapy, both physical and mental. Getting a housekeeper slash helper hired and acclimated. Settling my work affairs. A process I'd begun in the hospital. Getting used to being home and the way my home was going to have to be now that I was minus one sense. But I'd be by myself at night, in bed. And all I could do was think... Think about the old folks and their indefinite numbers and their blurry hands. Other things came from it, though. It... Huh? 
Delivery people talking on the sidewalk. I'm still fine. I need to hurry up. The bombs were the big hole for me. The nail bombs officials said were used. That's what gave me a way to think about what was bothering me. Quoted officials specifically referenced the Boston Marathon bombings. They estimated eight. Eight bombs, even clustered together, would not do the damage done, though. One of the later stories referenced the size of the crater, 30 feet in diameter, basically the size of the stage and four feet deep. Look, the Boston Marathon bombings were devastating, but not for their explosive force. Those assholes used two bombs, and the fatalities and injuries came from the shrapnel lodged within the bombs, not the explosion. Three people died, and almost 300 were injured, but the actual explosion looked like someone had set a big-ass M80 firecracker on the sidewalk. Even at the estimation of eight bombs clustered together, you're not going to vaporize a stage and 300 people. The Boston Marathon bombings left evidence. All the Tulip Park had was a fucking scorched hole in the ground. In my paranoid moments, I sometimes wonder if they said the Boston Marathon bombings just to lodge that idea in people's heads. They'll forget the details I just went over, and officials knew that. A better comparison would be IEDs, the kind used in Iraq. But that's too far away, 20 years ago now, for it to have any kind of lingering attachment. The zapruderring of the event wouldn't work. But to think that is sometimes, in daylight, too much even for me to accept. It sounds insane. It sounds less insane at night when I'm trying to sleep. It sounds less insane when I have a dead fucking body a few feet away from me where I eat my cereal in the morning and listen to the morning news. This is why I really hope you get this, Bobby, that you don't immediately turn it over to police. And it's shit like that that lets me know how paranoid I fucking sound. So anyway, we have a bombing that everyone says is a bombing, but other than a hole in the ground doesn't look anything like a bombing. We're now about six months after I came home from the hospital, so almost a year after the fact. I try to move on with my life. You visit regularly. I've gotten to know my neighbors more than I ever did when I had sight, and Tracy, the housekeeper slash helper, is really nice. You've met her. I finalized plans to teach an intro com course for the university online through web conferencing. That, along with my disability and pension, keeps me afloat. My life was starting to get some kind of order to it. But I thought about those old folks. I thought about that bombing that wasn't a bombing. But it never went anywhere. Both of those things were dead ends in my head. I have a memory, but my brain won't let me see it. So I tried a different angle. I looked up other survivors. This was harder than you might think. Officials don't release any names of the living, only the dead. The national media had landed, so that was a bit of respect for us. My name, you know, has never appeared in a news story involving the bombing. But there are ways of getting that info. Sources in the police department and hospitals, things like that. Shit, you can call other reporters who have beats you don't and dig into their sources. So that's what I did. But whenever I needed info and tried contacting sources, I had to spend an annoying amount of time talking about myself. How am I doing? What have I been up to, etc.? I was trying to be a reporter, and they were treating me like a goddamned long-lost friend. I had a story to do, even if the story was only for my own version of Zapruder, and I needed info. But I couldn't blow off the well-wishers and the trauma-porn addicts. You know, the ones, the ones who want all the gory details. They want to know how I sleep, how I get around, how I fuck. Because apparently blind people don't, according to them anyway. Never directly, but they want something to get off on. I told myself it wasn't as humiliating as it really was. 
I grinded my teeth through every one of those fucking conversations. I needed the info. It took three days of self-flagellation, but I finally got a list of survivors. On day four, I discovered the first suicide. Did you know the first survivor killed themselves a week after returning home? Did you know the second survivor did it three weeks after that? The survivors had a range of injuries, but the worst was me. A person who went deaf and a person who broke their femur. The rest were minor breakings, fingers, an ankle, or bruising. That in and of itself is noteworthy, but only tangential. But the first suicide, a father, took a gun and, when his wife and children left for the day, killed himself in his backyard. The second suicide was car exhaust in their garage. The third was hanging, and the fourth was overdose of painkillers. This was all within the first two months after the bombing. Reporters didn't make the connection. They still haven't, and that's only partially because the list of survivors is not public. Reporters didn't and don't care about the survivors, though. Other than a possible feature story about picking up the pieces, the shelf life of survivors is short unless something extraordinary happens. To make the connections, you had to put some time and effort into it. And our industry's too demanding for anything but the low-hanging fruit. I had the time, though. Could put in the effort. Within the first three months of the attack, a total of ten survivors killed themselves. Fucking ten, Bobby. That number of survivors dropped from 77 to 67. Over ten percent. Do you know how insane that is? Even taking away all the other crazy paranoid shit, ten survivors killed themselves. I know this because I, knowing the names, trolled the obituary section, the regional section. I even talked to my therapist, who was hospital appointed. She had a caseload full of us and was probably, other than me, the only person who knew more than one of the survivors. I asked indirectly how her other patients were doing, how they were coping. I made oblique references to suicide, and that led to a half-dozen sessions of reassurances that I wasn't contemplating it myself. But I finally got an admission from her that survivors often find it hard to readjust, even if their physical injuries weren't severe. Trauma's trauma, she explained. I'm paraphrasing, and everyone comes at it differently. There was no support group for us survivors, nor did the therapist suggest creating one or attending a more general one. I just had this slowly dwindling list and this box in my head my brain did not want me to open. By the time of the first anniversary, 67 had gone down to 50. The anniversary itself led to a spike of six. By the time I started making calls, the number of survivors was 42, and it had been 14 months since the event. Why all the suicides? Did they have a memory that their brains wouldn't let them see too? I asked my therapist directly if her other patients suffered amnesia, and she said no, but it took a full ten count to answer, and then she pivoted away. What if my box opened, and I saw what was inside? What would I do? I've suffered insomnia over that. So I started calling. Two weeks of hang-ups. I didn't devote hours of the day to it. I'd restarted my life after a fashion, but I gave a few minutes each day to call a number or two. Usually I'd get as far as confirming who I was speaking to, introducing myself and mentioning that I was a survivor of the event. Click. I didn't call back. Not right away. It took three weeks to call everyone. Another three suicides in that time. The number of survivors was 41. I cycled back to the top of my list, saved in a Google Doc that could recite it back to me, and tried that number again. Scott Ellison, college student, 
Suffered burns on the lower forearms and a concussion. I had his cell number, and it rang almost until voicemail when it clicked over and he said, You that reporter again? I told him, Yeah, I'm a survivor too. He asked me, Do you remember it? I told him no. I remember just before, then after in the hospital. He says, Pray you don't. And he says it like he's trying not to cry. I ask him why. I ask him if he's all right. I ask him if I should call Dr. Hartman, our therapist. He tells me it doesn't matter. He tells me that he's seen all he's going to see. The black rip, he calls it. I ask him what that is, and he says, everything. And he hangs up. Scott Ellison's body washed up in the river two days later. We were down to 40. It was the first... Stop. conversation I'd had with another survivor and it scared the fuck out of me, Bobby. The fuck. It felt like someone squeezed my heart. But I didn't know why beyond here I was talking with someone who was at the same thing. But what the fuck is The Black Rip? It sounds like a song title by a metal band that tries too fucking hard. But it scared me. fucking shaken, Bobby. And I didn't know why. I didn't make any calls after that. For a week I tried to ignore it, but that phrase had lodged itself in my goddamned head. My appetite disappeared. I slept like shit. I blew off two seminar sessions, which bugged me because I get paid by the session itself. But I couldn't focus. Tracy noticed. She's one of the few people besides you who's seen my apartment. And I about snapped her head off, then apologized. The black rip. That fucking line. A new detail, but without context and essentially meaningless. I heard it in my head when I'd managed some sleep. Either the way the kid said it, like he was out of breath, or the sound itself. It sounds like a cotton shirt ripping. During that week, two more suicides. Down to 38 survivors, and we were a year and a half out from the event. Finally, upset with myself, I googled the fucking phrase. The results were full of bullshit, self-published fiction, fabric DIYs, and, yep, two metal bands with band camp pages but no record deals. Um, there were two RPG references, both to a Lovecraftian type thing that sounded absolutely mind-numbingly stupid, but I looked into them. Nothing else on the front page. What's that saying? If it's not on the first page of Google, it doesn't exist? That first day, I stayed on the front page. I went to the other pages later. Finally hit on a website. A fucking blog. And who the fuck thought those still existed? From a loon. The loon talked about other dimensions and blending. And the natural superiority of the other dimensions where, and I quote, Beings exist only to subjugate the lesser creatures. Sounds like a white nationalist reading fucking cosmic horror. I tried to leave it alone. I'd hit too many dead ends and all I had was this dwindling list of survivors. 
Maybe my therapist was right, and everyone handled trauma, or didn't handle trauma, differently. Maybe so many suicides so quickly wasn't that odd. I've never researched something like that. How many survivors of other traumas wound up committing suicide? It was a shit answer with shit reasoning, but it still felt like someone was clenching my heart. Still felt... It had that feeling you get when you just avoid doing something disastrous. Like stepping off a curb and a car whips by. That narrowly averted feeling. At the second anniversary, I did nothing. The longer I pretended I was leading a normal life, the easier it became. I taught two courses on journalism via remote. I had Tracy, I had you. I still listened to movies and my podcast subscriptions exploded, as well as my music collection. I replaced most of my books with editions in Braille, wherever I could, or audible editions when I couldn't. I avoided the trauma porn addicts I'd called when trying to get the list of survivors, but thought of them any time I went on a date or fucked. Fuck them, I'd think. But, you know, not really. Third anniversary. Ditto. Fourth, fifth, sixth. I saw Dr. Hartman quarterly. I saw you monthly. We went out to celebrate when you made section editor. Then again when Bulwark finally retired. I saw Tracy weekly. But I watched the list of survivors dwindle. There was a low point around the sixth anniversary. One death. Then none for two years. <sighs> then it all went to shit a year and a half ago. Right before the ninth anniversary. Ten suicides within a month of each other. By this point, most survivors weren't even in the city. But I'd set up Google alerts on their names, just in case. See, I was pretending I'd shut the door on all that shit. But I'd gummed the lock. I could open it back up easily enough. Which is good, because around the same time, I started dreaming. Dreaming basically disappeared for me. I was never much of one to begin with. But after my blinding, when I went to sleep, pow, I was out. Like the sheer effort of teaching my other senses to pick up the slack, to change all my routines, wore me out. But around 14 months ago, I started dreaming about the festival. Of those dads in cargo shorts and their toddlers and strollers. Of college kids playing hacky sack. Was one of them Scott Ellison? He of the black rip? Maybe. I dreamed of the old folks. Twice or three times a week I had the same dream. Each time a little more detail and a little more detail. Until it was like I was viewing it in real time. The reemergence of detail at first made me happy. I'd been known for my attention to detail, but I hadn't had to or been able to use it for anything useful in Christ knew how long. I could see in the dreams, and I could see everything. The time of the first new death and the 56th suicide was around 11 months ago. It was at that time I dreamt what the old folks were doing with their hands, if I have my dates right. Remember Taylor Swift's Shake It Off music video? I know it's an odd question, but amidst all those dancers, do you remember a few folks doing twisty-turny stuff with their hands? Fingers curling and bending and twisting, seemingly ignoring the laws of physics and the limits of their bodies? It was interesting to watch, and those were all young, long-fingered people using their hands to create dance routines like they did with the rest of their bodies. The old folks in my dream at the festival were doing the same thing. I'd catch a glimmer of movement, then wake up. 
The next night, I'd see a little more, then a little more, for weeks. Sometimes they bent their pudgy, arthritic fingers alone. Sometimes two or more would join up, their hands threading together in a spiderweb of pale, papery skin. They moved fast, sometimes blurring. But was that real? Was it just a dream detail? As the commercial used to say when we were kids, was it live or was it Memorex? I got the Google notification for the 61st survivor, this one now living out in Tucson, Arizona. This was eight months ago. I stopped pretending to move on with my life. It was amazingly easy to drop. I started canceling meetings with you, blew off two sessions with my therapist. Tracy still came over, but I locked myself in my bedroom when she'd show and tell her through the door I was working. I think I hurt her feelings. I went back to that stupid phrase, the black rip. I went back to that website and started pulling more phrases out of it, googling those. They led me to more bullshit blog sites, but also a few old books that Google had scans of. I dictated into a doc file a number of notes. Bobby, you know my email, and my password is Kenny Blankenship, all one word, all lowercase, about what I found. And when I would play it back, it sounded like I was researching the most derivative Lovecraft story ever. The Black Rip is the thinning of the barrier between our dimension and others. It is the purposeful tearing of time and space to merge the two realities, and how the heart of one dimension is needed to merge with another, like a cosmic version of that old game show Love Connection. This bullshit is the domain of bad writers and fans of Alex Jones. But whatever, it's what I found. People always believe in crazy shit. What's worse, people are willing to do crazy shit. Between 11 months ago and last month, there had been five new deaths unrelated to the survivors. Bodies discovered in their homes after dropping out of sight for a few days. People with connections, but not close connections. They're missed, but not immediately. Bodies with their hearts removed, as if someone had cored through their chests. That sounds familiar. Doesn't it, Bobby? The difference between now and ten years ago was the wait time. Every other month instead of every other week. Five deaths in all, like last time, all in different parts of the city. Same neighborhoods as last time, but done in reverse order. If you haven't, Bobby, check a city map. I can picture it in my head. Five points on a map, and if you played Connect the Dots, you'd have a star, Bobby. A fucking star. You could do the same with the string of deaths ten years ago. You know what's in the center of that star, don't you, Bobby? The Tulip Park. Also, my apartment. But we'll get to that. One month ago, the final survivor, besides me, killed themselves. Claire McIntyre, born here, was living in Toledo, Ohio at the time of her death. She drank fucking bleach, Bobby. Chugged it after her partner left for work one morning. Fucking bleach! I got the Google notification the day after I had my last dream. My last dream contained all the details I'd previously gotten. The people, the weather, the old folks, what they were doing with their hands. But then it included the sound of guitar strings snapping. I see the guitar player, this husky guy, spazzing, back arching, arms flailing. From his chest, this, this tentacle is busting through it, breaking the guitar. 
It's not exactly a tentacle, more, more like a child's idea of what an octopus arm would look like. But what terrifies me is that you would think you'd see the rest of the tentacle behind the guy, shoving its way through, but you don't. It's not there. The black fucking rip. I woke up. I'd pissed the bed. That was a month ago. Five dead bodies, with longer times between the deaths than there'd been ten years ago, and 76 dead survivors, and one blinded journalist who dreamed about old folks doing hand exercises, and a tentacle thing puncturing a jam band guitarist. Was that the memory in the box in my head? Was that what had made me claw my own fucking eyes out? I don't know, I did... I don't know. So what? Were the old folks trying to merge dimensions? Are the deaths with their missing hearts part of a ceremony? Did I catch a ceremony that failed, but I saw enough to blind myself? Was what I dreamed the whole memory or just a glimpse? Would I be rushing for the bleach like Claire McIntyre or jumping off a bridge like Scott Ellison if I saw the entire thing? I don't know, Bobby. I don't know. This is what I've experienced over the past ten years. If it was a ceremony, and I think it was, why'd it fail? I don't know that either. I'm a reporter. I look for answers, but you always wind up with more questions. Which brings me to the dead man in my apartment. I heard him breaking in. I was in the kitchen. He couldn't run, and I sure as shit couldn't hide. So when he rushed in to get me, I grabbed a knife. We wrestled all around this fucking place. I had the obvious reporter question. Why? Why me? Why? He told me I'd seen the failure. No one could see the failure. Each time must be the first time. Then he started choking me. Then I stabbed him again and again until he stopped. Until he pissed on my leg. Until I could crawl out from under him. And the blood on me is nearly dried. I'm the opposite angle of the Kennedy assassination. A different point of view than the Zapruder film. I'm the other man at Dealey Plaza. My form and structure takes away and distracts from the accepted form and structure. No one remembers any other viewpoint to an American president's death. Everyone accepts a bomb went off at the Tulip Park. Anyone who didn't accept that died, killed themselves. Were they all suicides? I think so. I think so. But I had to be a reporter. I had to have questions, and those questions betrayed a different viewpoint, a different reality. Every time must be the first time. And here I sit, covered in blood, telling you, Bobby, that this has put a target on my head. It's three days until the ten-year anniversary of the bombing that wasn't a bombing. Ten years of suicides and new sacrifices. Ten years of questionings and upsetting the apple cart. Who were those old people? Why reference a bombing that couldn't possibly compare to this attack? Why wasn't anyone caught in those other deaths? Why were they able to find me? I hope you find out, Bobby. I hope you find it.
Hello, kiddies. So, you want access to the Wicked Archives, do you? Well, it takes money to keep the lights on and keep our beasties fed. Trust me, you don't want them hungry. They might just start eating the writers and then where would we be? Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash wickedlibrary and pledge your support to the show. For $2 a month, I'll give you a key to our collection of classic episodes. For $5 a month, I'll let you hear the bonus stories before the rest of our listeners. Even more tantalizing rewards await for those who want to sacrifice more to us. <laughs> Over 70 classic episodes are lurking deep in the private area of the library, just waiting to be heard by you. Pledge yourself to the library today, and you'll be ours forever. You're going to like it here, I think. <laughs> How much is it for people to enjoy the private area of the librarian, Dan? <laughs> a little flexibility can go a long way. By refinancing your newer used auto loan with PenFed, you can lower your monthly payments for more flexibility in your budget. You can even schedule your first payment for up to 60 days from the date of your refinance. Calculate how much you could save at PenFed.org slash autorefi or call 1-800-247-5626 to apply. Membership is open to everyone. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Pros bring something extra to every job. Now at the Home Depot, they also get something extra. Pro Extra, our free loyalty program built for pros just like you. Members earn perks with every dollar spent, like Pro Extra dollars, a tool rental credit, and more. New members get $20 off their next in-store purchase of $200 or more just for signing up. Learn more at homedepot.com slash proextra. New year, more rewards, Pro Extra, only at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. A little flexibility can go a long way. By refinancing your newer used auto loan with PenFed, you can lower your monthly payments for more flexibility in your budget. You can even schedule your first payment for up to 60 days from the date of your refinance. Calculate how much you could save at PenFed.org slash autorefi or call 1-800-247-5626 to apply. Membership is open to everyone. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Is that Shakespeare? Nope, it's Geico. Uh, yeah, 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 that's Shakespeare from one of his unpublished works. Oh, it be not for awakening. Nay, give it thou the berries. For 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Nope, it's from Geico because they help save people money. Well, I hate to break it to you, but Geico got it from Shakespeare. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more.